Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast, where we share stories about those who have fought to overcome addiction. Join us every Tuesday and Thursday for the latest stories, tools, and tricks to sobriety. Now, here's your host, Brock Bevel. Guys, welcome to another episode of the Chase the Vase podcast. This is Brock, your host. I am accompanied with a good buddy of mine, Scott Silverman. Scott, thanks for being here today. Before I get you to to chime in, because I know once we get started, this is going to go. I always start by thanking the first responders and those who are in the battle, protecting us and giving us that daily reprieve from what's going on. Thank you guys, and we support you. Now, most respect, Scott, I know this is a super special day for you and in your life, uh, the new year for you, the day or the year of the atonement, and and you're starting big things going on. You were saying that you haven't sinned much this year, so congratulations on that. I think you're doing a great job, man. I've been busy working on uh, doing the kind of stuff you do. I haven't had time to sin, but I am hoping, I'm optimistic for the new year. to Get a couple things in there, you know, get God's attention. This is Scott Silverman. Scott is a good buddy of mine. He's an author, a life coach. He's a family navigator. Scott, I just want to, I want to show people that I'm in possession of your book, The Opioid Epidemic. And what you don't know will destroy your family and your life. And Scott, this is could not come at a better time. This epidemic is ridiculous. I want to start it off, and, and I don't want to get into politics unless you want to, over the epidemic. But my question is simple. Where is the White House on all of this? Can you answer that? I think it's a great question. And I, and I think it doesn't stop there. Right? It's not just the White House. You know, when I first launched my book last year, I sent a copy to every governor in the country, 50 books. There were 50 governors at the time. I got five thank you notes and I got one book returned because Pennsylvania governor, I guess, they don't take gifts. And nobody said boo. I got a nice letter somewhere. I think it was, uh, was it Iowa? I don't know. One of the governors, significant other, was very active in the, you know, the opioid battle, if you will. I live in San Diego. I'm not bragging and I'm not complaining. I'm just sharing that. We are a major border town and we have been working with mood altering substances for decades from methamphetamine to crack cocaine to cocaine to heroin, you know, and of course, fentanyl and oxy and other opioids coming across the border. And I just met with one of the higher level behavioral health experts in our community. And the question was asked, do you think we're doing a good job? with our prevention and education. And, you know, I try and, you know, and I'm older and I'm cranky. It can happen. You'll see, Brock, something to look forward to one day. I answered the question and I said to myself, Scott, be nice. Don't go there. So I said, if you look at our current overdose rate increase of this year over last year of nearly 600%, I said, how do you think we're doing? Meaning there's no reason to say and pat ourselves on the back at any level But at the end of the day, you know, a lot of these, you know, look, San Diego, four weeks ago, public health crisis, fentanyl, San Francisco, big city, you know, public health crisis. I've tried to reach out to the mayor there probably a dozen times, no response. It's like nobody in leadership wants to have a conversation. Now, I think there's every effort that they think they could be doing, they're doing. I mean, even the White House just earmarked, what is it, 1.5? 1.5 billion dollars, you know, nationally. So by the time that gets dispersed, San Diego will get like 85 bucks. I don't know what Arizona will get. You know, you'll get more because you're closer to the to DC. 
But when you think about this, we have to look at this crisis like we're looking at the pandemic, you know, and like we're looking at COVID. You know, I was just on a three-day conference and a couple of great federal leaders, a couple in recovery that are in the, you know, working in health and human services and working in, in the, the drug recovery effort. Even they said, our real-time information is two years old. I mean, right now, we still continue to get daily counts of how many people are expiring from COVID, how many people were diagnosed. We have to take the same position with this, just like we did with HIV and just like we did with tobacco. So until that happens, in my opinion, guys that like you and I that are, you know, kind of uh, in the street, so to speak, we're going to continue to be overwhelmed. And, and, you know, I talk to, because of what I do and how I do it in my community, I talk to criminal justice. I'm talking to the DA. I'm talking to the U.S. attorney. You know, I'm on the prescription drug abuse task force. I'm on the methamphetamine task force. I run my own treatment center. I'm an interventionist. I work with families and I talk to, you know, buddies of mine that are in the DEA that are retired, you know, and also I'm in recovery. So I'm hearing in the meetings what's happening to our fellowship with people that are accessing it. So, you know, and I talk to emergency department doctors and, you know, addiction psychiatrists, and I'm coaching a lot of the experts in the field because they're stressed. They don't have a place to go. My point to all this is we're taking a squirt gun to a forest fire. So yes, people are doing something. Because if you went to any mayor in any city, they would tell you, gee whiz, Brock, we've launched this campaign and we've put out messages you know, on, on social media, and we spent a half a million dollars, you know, with these spots on television that aren't watched by the 23-year-old who's accidentally overdosed. So there is effort going on. I don't want to take that away from any community. But again, it's a squirt gun coming to a forest fire. That's, so that's kind of my opening rant. Yeah, I like that. I've heard putting a bandit on a bullet hole. I understand what you're saying. No, but you made a, made a good comment. You talked about we need to approach this fentanyl epidemic like we did COVID. And we, right or wrong, shut down this community. We shut down America. Basically, the world shut down for this epidemic. And I, I'm, like I said, I'm not going to get into whether we're a forward against it, but where energy goes, energy flows, right? And we think about that. And so why? Why do you think we're not attacking fentanyl? which has taken more lives than COVID, okay? If I'm not mistaken, the last year we were at 107,020, and this year is going to be astronomical. I bet we're way up from that. The problem is, like COVID. And that data is dated, Brock. I mean, it, you know, we got the number. It's probably 18 months old. So, you know, we're not doing it in real time. The Fed's just admitted to that, and they say that. They go, you know, there's just not a mechanism in place. And by the way, when you talk to all the experts, the experts, whatever that might be defined as, and, and you ask the question, what can we do? What are we doing? What should be done? The fascinating, consistent response that I'm getting is, we don't know. You know, when you look at the accidental overdose, it's, a, it's an 18, 19, 20, 23-year-old who's actually taking a Xanax that's laced with fentanyl. I did a presentation a couple months back to a bunch of county people. I call them the bean counters. And I said, there was a DA quoted that said that up to 80% of the illicit drugs in California, up to 80% is laced with fentanyl. So the person who brought me in to speak, you know, said, oh, Scott, I, I got to share this feedback. A couple of our high level, you know, county people said that, you know, you can't make that kind of statement because there's no data around it. I said, well, while the county experts study this over the next 18 months, we're going to lose another 
you know, 180,000 people. So I was quoting a DA and I said, the DA is getting their information from the medical examiner. And if it's not from the medical examiner, it's from the arresting officers who are testing the drugs that they confiscate upon arrest. So it's not a fabricated number. It's just what they said. I said, if you want me to change it to up to 80%, I'll reframe my messaging, but I'm not going to because you can look at the data in real time if you can get it, which you can't, but I know what's going on because I've been tracking it now for eight years. This is happening. And you know the question really is, how are we going to fix this? And I have an answer. My answer is this. Like, you know, I love the, the phrase, everyone loves a piece of pie. Prevention, intervention, if you will, or inf- information, inform, and educate. Every manufacturer right now that's making illicit drugs in, in the world sees America as the big target. So how do we teach a 19-year-old that before you put a pill, because one pill can kill, in your mouth, make sure you know where it came from. Make sure you know where it came from. And people say, well, you know, you can't tell kids what to do. Well, you can ask a kid, would you drive your car 80 miles an hour in the rain with no headlights? No kid would go, no, I would never do that. Okay. So we know that they can think. So how do we get that information to them? Well, we got to get to the platforms where the young people are receiving information. It's mostly social media. So when I hear you know, a DA's office somewhere across the country say, yeah, we just spent a million and a half dollars doing public service announcements around the clock. And our data shows we had over, you know, 800,000 impressions. I said, who was watching it? You want to know my feeling of social media? Social media is the new trap house. It's the new corner store, man. Well, you mean as far as ability for for sales, you know, consumption? But it's also, but to your point, it's also going to be the place we have to get the message because kids are not reading the newspaper. Kids are not watching the news. They're not listening to CNN or MSNBC or Fox. That's not their platform or their medium. So, yeah. And the problem is, if you think about it, if the competition of education of our young people is the distributor or the local sling, they they got more money. They have more time. And, you know, and some of them are tweakers, so they never go to sleep anyway. So they're pushing the messaging out. And that's what I'm going to ask, because here's the deal. If we know that, if we know that social media is the push, so do the traffickers. Since you're in this and you're, you're promoting fentanyl substance and you're in abstinence and, and awareness and knowledge and joy, I understand. The problem is, have you been sent unwarranted responses from drug dealers. I had one send me an Adderall ad on my Instagram. And so I don't know if it's the algorithm, what's going on, but I mean, I'll send it to you and show you what it looked like. I was like, holy cow, man, I'm fighting against it. But yet I'm getting these plugs, these dealers sending me requests for Adderall. And it's probably because what I'm searching and what I'm learning and, and what I'm sharing. So they're as good as we are. Uh, I'm sorry. Actually, they're better. And you know what? They don't have boundaries. You and I technically have built-in boundaries because we're not being listened to or nobody wants to hear. Look, addiction is a disease of denial. And anytime somebody raises their hand, I just did an interview with some, I did a pre-interview yesterday with somebody who I'm going to be on their podcast and they work with a very specialized professional industry. I don't want to say it because I don't want to disclose it. And telling me that 
They really don't want to talk about it that way because they think their listener might be uncomfortable with it. I said, I'd be willing to bet that if we surveyed your listener, and they have a pretty good size audience, that one in five have a family member who's suffering, and the other four have been impacted by the one in five. So they, you may not think that they want to talk about it, and they may even say it out loud, but if we don't talk about it, it's only going to escalate, you know, and we just had a person expire here recently in our community, you know, to a high profile family. And I say high profile family because they're a major community leader and they're an influencer. And and you'd think, how can this happen to their kid? Well, they were at a party. They accidentally put something in their body unbeknownst to them because most people aren't going to say, hey, here's a capsule of poison. Would you mind trying it? And let's see how it goes. But if it looks like Xanax or, you know, it's colored pills coming in that look like Skittles. So, you know, you and I can talk to we're blue in the face. And I think that we need to make this as important as anything we've ever done. Anything we've ever done. Because ultimately, the ripple effect of this will be a lot worse than COVID. It'll be worse than HIV AIDS. It'll be worse than the tobacco industry. And as you said, the distributors are relentless because they can make so much money so quickly with such a small investment. I mean, there are people here in California that are getting drugs fronted to them because there's such a profit margin. The distributors don't care if they don't get paid because ultimately they'll make it up somewhere else. That's my competitor, you know, and I'm a retired unlicensed pharmacist, so I understand the mindset. Get it? I got to tell you, I have been approached in the last five years, four separate times to join an effort to build the marijuana legalization, you know, distribution business. And I've been offered huge turnkey money and big equity, but, you know, I I choose not to do it. You know, and medical marijuana is important. And, you know, and right now we're having conversations about, you know, how do we substitute the, you know, Oxycontin that people were prescribed for so long. And supposedly, you know, the AMA is beating themselves in the chest. The pharmaceutical association is going, hey, script writing is down 50%. Well, yeah, but all those people that were addicted their addiction didn't go away because you stopped giving them prescriptions. They're substituting. And we're seeing, you know, heroin sales are up, you know. And so fentanyl is becoming more attractive now than I've ever seen it. And that is really scary. And you're, and you're describing that in Arizona. It's $2.50 a pill in Arizona. Think about that. That's assuming you're buying one. I know there are people right now that are distributing methamphetamine in Los Angeles. And they're fronting one, two kilos to people. They don't know. Because they don't care. It's being made so inexpensively. And if it's cut with fentanyl, you know, they're giving them maybe four keys and just say, look, you know, we really would like our money soon, but we understand it's tough out there. Here you go. And they may not start them with four keys, but they're pushing it out there or four pounds, whatever you want to say, because someone's going to correct this and go, it's not really kilos anymore. They're only shipping pounds. And I talk to everybody in criminal justice and they, they're so excited, which is positive that they're making these tremendous busts. And, you know, we're seeing it in the news now, a million pills or enough pills to kill a million people. But, you know, you know, like I know, and like they know, that historically, in the best day criminal justice has, and they've been doing a wonderful job increasing the the bust ratio, if you will, but the percentage of what they catch hasn't changed, which means if they're catching the same 10%, and that same 10% is a million pills, And five years ago, that 10% was, you know, 200,000 pills. 
that means there's another 90% that's still continually getting through. So when I hear about a big bus, I say, yay, that's awesome. But I also know what got around them. I mean, we have 70,000 cars. Okay. I just did a piece on the border. We have 70,000 cars that come across the Tijuana Mexican border in San Diego every day. That's private. And then there's another 15% more, I think, that are commercial. And according to the data, less than 1% of the vehicles are searched because of people power. And it's really not even people power. What they say is if they were to search everybody, which, you know, most people say, well, why don't they? Well, we'd have a parking lot and it wouldn't be a border crossing. (laughs) It would just be a log jam. So, you know, the Border Patrol, Homeland Security, they're working harder now than they ever have. And the people power has really grown. But no matter what they do, you know, the competition, you know, between the drones. Didn't we just hire 86,000 new IRS agents? Can't we put a few of them down there to help out? Well, I think it was 68,000, but it's still a lot. It's still a lot. Let's put some help down there, man. Well, you know, down there, it could be anywhere. You know, it could be anywhere that, that we need it right now. But here's the thing. If the demand doesn't slow down from our consumer, you know, you and I can get five grand together. You put up 4,500. I'll put up 500 because I work for a nonprofit now. We could buy on the dark web enough material to create a million dollars in sales of fentanyl. And if it's that easy for an old guy like me to find that information, imagine the people that are surfing the dark web. Imagine what they're able to get their hands on right now. And it's so attractive. And to your point, you know, with social media, the bad side is algorithms can be depicted. They can hunt you down and create an opportunity for you. You know, don't buy lunch today. Buy five hits of, you know, Xanax whacked with fentanyl and make new friends and make a living. And, you know, you're 11 years old. Oh, my God. We could go in a million different directions with this. We understand that this is a freaking massive epidemic. Here's what I want to talk about because I know that you were killing it. Yesterday, I read one of your articles. Are you listening to your teens enough to prevent them from using fentanyl? And then I said seven telltale signs that your loved one has an opioid addiction. So I know that you're out there killing it. I would love to hear you speak to the parents. I speak to the parents every day, but coming from a different voice, talk to us. How are, how can these parents see it, feel it, touch it, and get involved and and be energized to help their children out. You know, the easiest, simple way that may be a little uncomfortable for people is I tell parents they need to, I'm just going to say it, they need to shut up and listen. You know, with the information you have as a caring, loving parent, you want to fix it. You want to give your kid the information they need to make an intelligent decision. Well, kids are much smarter today than we think they are. We're given two ears and one mouth. So what I do tell parents is, look, first, you need to inform yourself. Go online, Google it, you know, understand what vaping is, understand, you know, what illicit drugs are, understand that accidental overdoses right now are at at a rise. What does an accidental overdose even mean? I can remember 10 years ago, I'd hear that and go, who accidentally overdoses? I mean, but that, you know, as, as a recovering addict, I I like to feel like I was trying to every day, but in my day, that stuff wouldn't kill you. Even if you took a lot of it, you might get sick, blah, blah, blah. Today, it's poison. You know, it's absolutely poison. So I suggest the parents get informed. You know, the pie concept, you know, prevention, information, education. Talk to somebody, especially if you believe your child is involved. And 
If you don't believe your child is involved, know that your child is talking to somebody every day that is involved. So prepare them and have the conversation. And what I mean by that is just say, hey, you know, let's say you're my kid, Brock. I say, yeah, Brock, you know, I was reading this thing from, you know, you know, our friends, the, the Joneses. They were telling me that this thing's going on with these accidental overdoses. What can you tell me about that? So you start the conversation. And when you ask the question, you shut up. Let the child talk. Develop that relationship of trust. Because ultimately, no matter what you do to prepare your child, if they end up someplace and there's a little bit of peer pressure and they take a pill that's laced with fentanyl, the odds are very good. They're potentially going to die. And, you know, I heard a statistic the other day, which I thought was, I don't know if that answers your question or not. So it's the listening part and the conversation that parents need to have with their kids. And, and if you've got, you know, what do they call them? Multiple kids, <laughs> multiple units of the house. If you have other children, maybe have the eldest, you know, have a conversation with them first to kind of ease the conversation. And, and if you have a younger child, because, you know, the science says the middle child's the one that always is at risk. Have a conversation with them as well. Or maybe have a family meeting and search for information rather than, you know, bring the finger of shame out and go, oh, you know, you shouldn't be doing this and don't do that. And, you know, that kid across the street, you know, don't hang out with him because I saw them the other day and they got a new tattoo and and it looks like they're riding a stolen e-bike now. And I just don't trust that family. And I think the father drinks a lot. And, and you go through this, kids hear this and they're like, God, I don't want to talk to my mom and dad. I want to insulate myself from that kind of pressure. Open that conversation in a way that, you know, you probably didn't get a chance to learn how to do it. And again, if you don't, go on YouTube. Call me, 619-993-2738. 619-993-2738. Let's have a conversation. I will coach you through, give you some tools. It's not that hard, meaning, yes, there's a learning curve. But if your kid breaks their leg, you don't go to YouTube. You take them to the emergency department. And this is a lot more severe because it's so opaque. And when you ask yourself, why would my child take a pill? Well, instead of trying to figure out the answer to that, talk with them about it. So at least they're a little bit resilient and they have some strength and they have some power to make an informed decision because they're going to be somewhere where these drugs are. I don't care who they are, what economic part of the community belong to, what zip code you're in, how much money you do have, don't have, they're going to get exposed to it, especially in states, you know, like yours and ours and Texas, you know, border towns, because a lot of stuff's coming through the borders, but, you know, it's not just the southern borders. It's Canada. It's being shipped through USPS right now. You can get all the stuff we described earlier on the dark web, comes to you through the USPS to your home. That's how it's getting shipped to most people. And people are willing to take the risk for that kind of money. So hopefully, you know, I've I've answered your question. But I want to also point some other thing out. I heard the other day, which is something interesting, that for every overdose, there's 14 overdoses that are being reversed, which is remarkable. So when we hear about the 107,000 deaths, think about that. 14 for every one of those overdoses was reversed. So that's how many more people actually consumed something that caused an overdose, which is more than likely some form of opioid and more than likely 80% chance of being laced with fentanyl. 
And that was something that was quoted by the CDC at this conference I was at. And I was astonished by that because I think that's remarkable that we're doing such a great job. And the lock zones out there and families are trying to do something. It just goes to show. But at the end of the day, if we're losing 107, and I think that number is probably more like 160, because they, the way they take the data, they meet, the medical examiner does that, and, it, and it's the percentage of what's in your blood system. So, you know, if you have 1% that's less, that's fentanyl, and you've got methamphetamine on top, methamphetamine's the cause of death, not opioids. I love this conversation. I love talking about parents and, and parents, they're in a, they're stuck in a, in a bad spot. And we keep telling them, guys, just talk to your kids. Cause if you're not talking to your kids, somebody else is talking to your kids. Listen, if you all of a sudden feel like, Hey, I need to talk to my kids about fentanyl. If I need to have that sex talk, if I, guys, you're too late. You're about two years too late. They've already known about it. They're already talking about it. They're making jokes about it. It's real. And the second part, Scott, you said something. You know, as parents, our children watch us. It's a learned behavior, too. So they see us skipping out. They see us coping. They see us using antidepressants to chill out. They see us using alcohol as a coping mechanism. We come home from work. I just need a drink before I can talk to you. You know, so our kids are watching us. And then they're going to a party and saying, oh, man, I've seen my dad escape for a minute. It didn't affect him. It didn't hurt him. It kind of chilled him out. And so that's kind of something, that's why we need to have these conversations is when we were kids, when we were growing up, that joint didn't kill us. It didn't kill us. And we never worried about dying. Today, you're dying. Your chance of dying is like you said, I I know it came out here, four out of 10 pills, eight out of 10 pills where you're at. I mean, that's astronomical. Your odds of dying are super high. And the more you use, they're just continuously going up. Right, because one of those pills is going to be, you know, whacked, laced heavily. By the way, I want to add something to it. One thing you said that, you know, talk to your kids. I want to emphasize listening to your kids. Because I think when I tell a parent to talk to their kids, they kind of open up and do that data dump that's already in their head. And I don't think that's an effective way to talk to children. And the reason I, I say this is because when I talk to a kid and parents call me and go, can you talk to my son? He's right here. Yeah, well, but where are you? I'm an ICU. <laughs> what are you doing? ICU. I overdosed. And, and my parents are upset with me. And I'm, the parents are putting this kid on the phone with me. They want someone to fix it. And who is it, Ron? Is it Ron White says you can't fix stupid? And the comedian can't fix stupid. So I really want parents to listen and learn to listen. Yes, they need to have the conversation. And more than likely, they have to start it. It's a level of diplomacy. I mean, look and I'm going to take this a step further with what you were talking about. Kids, when you talk about the parent being an example, I'd be willing to bet that nine out of 10 kids that are doing any kind of experiment, and according to data, something like seven, 10 out of kids are right now, they go to your medicine cabinet, you know, and they may look at your ibuprofen, and they're going to look at your Bayer aspirin, and they're going to look at your blood pressure medicine, and they're going to look at your, your insulin, but they're also going to see Oxycontin, Xanax, Valium, you know, Prozac, Zoloft, blah, 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 blah. And then they go research it. So kids justify what they learn, to your point. But the hidden, you know, I ran this nonprofit, the Safe Home Coalition, you know, eradicating unused and unsafe medication. So my years of doing that, it's amazing because that's where a lot of the opioids used to be stolen from is medicine cabinets. And kids are still doing it. I mean, 2016, there was something like 200 and 
70 million prescriptions of Oxycontin written in this country. And according to all indicators, half of those prescriptions still sit in medicine cabinets because people don't want to get rid of it because they never know if they might need it. And that's the parents' mindset, right? So the kids see that, they hear it, and they've watched over the years. And parents say, well, we're very careful. Well, are the grandparents still in the picture? Grandma and grandpa taking any medication? I mean, you know. And with legalized marijuana now, there's this rationale. And then, of course, that I love that finger pointing of, well, my mom and dad drink every night. Alcohol's legal. Why can't I do this, this, and that? Well, okay. I'm not going to argue with you. Yeah, it's legal if you're of age. But it's not a matter of legality. I mean, like, you know, the THC content now, I got shunned for this one, too, is, you know, is north of 80% in the average marijuana that's being sold today over the counter, you know, over the counter, sometimes under the counter. And there's nothing wrong with legalized marijuana, but, you know, something with that high of THC content, if you're mixing that with other things or you're weak and susceptible, yeah, I don't know if you have you heard that term scrominging? It was created here in the emergency department where kids, young people come in screaming and vomiting from an overdose of marijuana. Just marijuana is so strong. They're screaming and vomiting. The term was coined scrometing by a a doctor, Ronit Lev here, who wrote the death diaries talking about how doctors are prescribing medication before checking the database to see if the person they're scribing for just got a prescription from a pharmacy yesterday. So those are the, I call the traditional prescription consumers, the pill chasers, the pharmaceutical, you know, pill people who, who do that. I, you know, I'm more concerned about the person who's taking that fentanyl-laced illicit drugs. Because you know what? I've never met a drug manufacturer who has quality assurance at the end of their assembly line where somebody puts their initials inspected by Brock Bevel. You know, it doesn't happen. So we have to not trust the things that we're seeing on the streets and put them on our body. But that's a message that's so simple. But when you think about it, it's just not getting through. So how do we do that? We have to make it as important as the weather we talk about every single day. And the question then begs, coming back to your first question, who's going to take the leadership role with that? I mean, a guy like me is trying to kick in doors, throw through rocks, you know, scream at the mayors. I don't get responses from them. I mean, and one day my phone's going to start ringing off the hook, you know, and it's going to be like, hey, we got a big fire here and somebody threw away our skirt gun. Can you help us put out the fire? Well, but now we've got this trajectory where, you know, instead of 107 overdoses a year, it's now over a quarter million. You know, and every time somebody dies, it's not just somebody, it's somebody's loved one. And if you figure the average person has got five to 10 family members and 20 to 30 friends, and you extrapolate that number, so many people are impacted by the the death. And then if you look at those other 14 that overdosed, imagine the fear factor. And a lot of people I know in recovery, when we survive something like that, our attitude is, hey, we're invincible. You know, this fentanyl thing, not going to bother me. You know, and when I hear about someone who's an alcoholic, who's in recovery, been in recovery 10 years, had a procedure and they gave them three days of oxy and day four and five, their dependency fired right back up because they're disease and they end up taking some street fentanyl. They die. Scott, I want to end with this because I think this is this is super important to discuss. And I, I know your wealth of information here. We've hit on a ton of topics 
what we haven't discussed is the mental health amongst our youth and us. You know, I mean, almost 13 years sober and I still get triggered. I still have thoughts, you know. So I think it's important that we talk mental health for a second and how we can empower them. How we can, because here's the deal. We're, we, you and I, we're not stopping the flow of fentanyl. Unless this government takes it like we did the COVID, we shut things down, we slow the bar. That's going to be a difference. But the problem is we can affect young men and women. We can help them in their mental health. Where do we start, brother? Well, first of all, thanks for bringing that up. You know, it's like sometimes I forget to talk about marijuana and people would criticize me. And then sometimes I forget to talk about alcohol. And alcohol is still one of the largest consumed mood-altering substances in our country. You know, I've never met anybody who suffers from this disease of addiction that doesn't have underlying mental health issues. As a matter of fact, if you go through and look at some of the data post-pandemic, right now there are very few people who don't have some sort of a mental health issue going on, whether it's, you know, sleep deprivation, anxiety, slight depression, major depression. And then you look at, you know, like the veterans we serve and first responders who are in the trenches every day, the untreated trauma that goes on in our community right now is is scary. I was talking to a family in uh, Iowa a couple of weeks ago. They have an, uh, an eight-year-old that has a major personality disorder, and they barely got it diagnosed, but it's, it's going to take them 18 months to get to a psychiatrist. 18 months. So the kid's not going to suffer for, for 18 months. The kid's going to do something. Even at eight years old, they're not going to you know, the parents aren't going to take some sort of action. I don't know what they're going to do. They're concerned. So it has to be a conversation. And you look, you know what? It may be a better way to start a conversation. You know, when you say to somebody, hey, how are you feeling? And you bite your tongue and wait for their response. Their response may tell you what question you need to ask next. And it might even be a better way to table that kind of conversation. One of the things that we're learning with first responders, you know, and confidential recovery was started to serve, serve first responders. They don't want to come to a place that serves first responders if they have a problem with addiction. So the idea of 30% of first responders are veterans, at least in our community, and I'm sure it's similar in yours. We're going to, with the nonprofit, you know, the Veterans Navigation Center, we might be able to get them to come in under the umbrella of, you know, something doesn't feel right, rather than, I think I have a drug addiction, because that's a career killer. I think we may try to not spin, but kind of market how we do what we do different, a little bit differently. Instead of saying, do you suffer from drug addiction? You know, how are you feeling today? And if you're not feeling the way you think you want to be, do you want to talk about it? So I think mental health, I call it behavioral health because that way it's an umbrella covers everything and it doesn't put the stigma. And another point, you know, about reducing the stigma, that's the piece that we have to make it as comfortable for people to talk about. Here's somebody stand up and go, hey, you know, I've been depressed for weeks and I've acted out inappropriately and I gambled and lost 10 grand and you know I stepped out on my lover and I don't know what to do and oh and by the way I am addicted to you know oxycontin and marijuana people aren't going to stand up they're not going to disclose like that but we know statistically 15% of a problem you know 15 will impact seven every day negatively so 85% of our population is impacted by this right now and by the way, somebody quoted a figure the other day that said 800 people a day are dying. And of that, a significant portion of it is around suicide. And according to, you know, the data, 80% of veterans who take their own life with suicide, 80% have not sought help 
And I don't think that number is probably too different when it comes to first responders as well. Their job is to take care of us. So, you know, I'm the guy that nobody wants to take on a long trip in a motorhome just because of my topics. But I'd like to be able to talk about one day that, you know, things are trending down. You know, we're putting people and look, some knucklehead who's out there selling drugs like this, they've got to have some mental health issues as well because they know what they're selling is killing people. And, you know, our DA is really pushing hard now. You get caught giving someone a pill that's laced with fentanyl and that person overdoses and you get caught, you're going to prison for a minimum for you know manslaughter and potentially murder. And the problem with that is it may have just been a friend of a friend who got two pills and the person who sold it to him, they're not getting hooked up. And it's all tracked on social media, all there, everything, all the drug deal, all the emojis, all the drop off, everything. Well, man, brother, I appreciate this has been invigorating. It's been awesome. I got some things off my chest. I hope parents out there will listen to this. This is Scott Silverman. And Scott, tell us how we can, I know we have your number. I know they can go to the, uh, the opioid epidemic written by you, Scott H. Silverman. How else can they find you, brother? Just Google Scott H. Silverman. Do that. And then, you know, you'll come to my, yourcrisiscoach.com. You'll come to Confidential Recovery. You can call me from anywhere on the planet, 619-993-2738. Call me, text me, email me through my website, Scott H. Silverman. I'm not hard to find. And, you know, when you're thinking, should I really call him? Don't finish that thought. Just pick up the phone and call me. I want to drink from a fire hose, which means I'm limited. I can only take about 300 calls a day personally, you know. That phone's heavy, though. You know that. That phone's heavy, brother. It's a 5,000-pound phone when we really need to call and talk to somebody. I, and I know the hardest words in the English language, I need help. Those three words are the hardest words to say out loud. But here's the thing. You know what? I tell people that I sponsor, when you think you really want to go out and drink and you really think you've got a good justification for it, and you've got enough cocaine in your pocket, you call me, we'll go together. So whatever it takes to get the phone to ring, no matter how much it weighs, text me, call me, we can FaceTime, you know, it doesn't matter. Because here's the thing, people ask me all the time, why do you give your number out, Scott? Because if people can't reach you, they can't talk to you. And if I can't help somebody by talking to them, I don't know how to help somebody. I mean, I can will it, and I can pray about it, and I can think about it, and I can put the energy out there. But ultimately, we get on the phone together. We'll figure something out. There is hope. There is help. And if nobody's told you today they love you, I love you. Hey, guys, thank you. You've been well-fed. You've been nourished, man. We've got some information out there for you. Please reach out to Scott. Reach out to Brock. Reach out to Max. We're all here for you guys. Uh, Victory Recovery, AZ, we're, we're ready for you. Scott, thank you so much for your time, brother. And I hope we do this again soon, man. Anytime. You know me. Anytime. You've been listening to Chase the Vase Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcasts to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more information, please follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook, or visit our website, chasethevase.com. Until next time, keep chasing the vase.